0: So, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but you are all on a renunciate path. This tradition has a strong lineage of renunciate practice, and the Buddha was the original renunciate in our tradition. Many of you know the life story of the Buddha, how he was born into a wealthy family. Some even say uh, born to, born as a son of a king, so he was a prince. And he lived a life of great luxury. He had every sense pleasure fulfilled, was able to indulge all of the sense pleasures and actually deliberately kept away from exposure to what was difficult in life. And it was uh, because when he opened to the the challenges of life, the suffering that's inherent in being born and then old age, sickness and death, that he decided to leave that life of luxury and pursue uh, a different kind of path, a different kind of happiness. And it's said that when he first left the palace, he studied with the greatest teachers of the time, who taught him deep states of concentration, that was considered the highest teaching. And he excelled at those and saw that they too weren't the way to complete happiness because they were conditional. You could be in whatever supreme state of bliss in a concentration uh, mode, but when you came out you were back with the reality of life and death. So he moved from that to taking up the challenges of another kind of practice that was uh, prominent at his time, which is that of ascetic practices. And again, he excelled at them. He took them to the most extreme that anyone could take. He said things like, no one has experienced such agonizing pain as I have in doing these renunciate practices, ascetic practices of starving himself and sleeping outdoors and not wearing clothes and not bathing and standing and not lying down, all kinds of things. But he eventually saw that that too did not lead to the end of suffering. Uh, The idea was if you tormented the body enough, the soul, the atta, would be released and and join in union with Brahma. Uh, He saw that wasn't happening. So he discovered what he called the middle way. He took some food and started to take care of himself and developed and started to teach what he called the middle way, which is the middle way between asceticism, which he called ignoble, and indulgence, which he said didn't lead anywhere. So this is what he taught for the rest of his life, for the 45 years or so that uh, he lived. And this is what has come down to us today. is known as the middle way or the middle path. Now, what the Buddha considered a middle way or middle path to us would be extreme asceticism. I mean, he had just a few robes and a bowl and he lived outdoors most of the time, walked everywhere, you know, had no possessions to speak of. But at the time, it was definitely considered a middle way and the way to happiness. And it's interesting that even after his awakening, after he really discovered this happiness that he was looking for, Mara, this personification of evil or doubt, the the force that tries to make us give up our spiritual practice and our intention towards awakening, Mara kept visiting the Buddha and was always trying to entice him with power, with wealth, with a life of ease, saying, you know, you could give all that up, you don't need to worry yourself about all that, come with me and I'll show you a good time, kind of thing. And the Buddha always said, no, you know, I've discovered a greater happiness. In that life of simplicity, in that life of renunciation, was a greater happiness than any wealth or power could offer him. So a whole traditional lineage of renunciation, the monks and nuns in our tradition, take extreme vows um, of renunciation, of celibacy, of not eating afternoon, of not handling money, um, of of only owning a few robes and a bowl, not having uh, many possessions, just the bare necessities of life, you get a little taste of that in coming on retreat. I don't know, again, what you said to your friends and family when they heard you were going on retreat and they imagined you bundled up in your white terry cloth towel going between the spa and the massage room. (laughs) But um, it's not like that, is it? You know, you go between your hard zafu and outdoors, walking slowly back and forth. You know, it's not a lot of entertainment here. You have this very small room. Um, no distractions of all the things that we usually entertain ourselves with. The vow of silence, it's a huge renunciation to take that vow of giving up relationships and communication. Often, if you tell people about what's going to happen on this retreat and they hear you're not going to speak for all these weeks, it's like their jaw drops. They cannot fathom what it would be like to not talk but actually most of us here find it's the one of the best things about retreat is actually giving that up. But it is a renunciation. It definitely is a renunciation. If you take the eight precepts, giving up solid food after the midday meal. In some ways, the life we live here has more renunciation in it than many monastics uh, live. If you've traveled in Asia, you'll see monks with televisions in their room and cell phones and video cameras and you know, all of the latest gadgets. The simplicity that we um, practice with here is, is quite extreme in some way. So a lot of renunciation. And this, this um, renunciation, as I said, a long and deep tradition, and it has a purpose, it has a function. It's about really pointing us again and again to what do we need to be happy? What actually do we need to find well-being and contentment here and now? There's a great book about um, aspects of our lineage called Forest Recollections by Kamala Tjanovic. Um And she wrote about an era of Buddhist practice in Thailand called the forest tradition of the last century, you know, a lot in the last century, perhaps a little bit earlier than that. But it was at a time when Thailand was still um, very forested, a lot of jungles. And these mainly monks would live in these very isolated monasteries, already a a very renunciate lifestyle, you know, only one meal a day often and just the simple robes and a a real strength of practice. But as an extra asceticism, they would go on what's called tudong, which means basically going on walkabout, going out on these long um, adventures where they just take their robes and their bowl and they'd set out through the jungle. And at that time there are tigers and elephants in the jungle. Um, And so part of their practice was just sleeping out at night in the jungle and not knowing what might happen. And there are stories in that book of people following along a trail and finding by the side of the trail a bowl and a few scraps of robes. And someone met their fate there in the jungle. So it was really a lot of asceticism that they practiced. They were really sincere practitioners. It's quite an amazing book to read. And I've just been reading another book about the teachings of a Thai, another Thai practitioner, but this time a lay woman called Upasika Ki. I think Guy quoted a little bit from her. Oh no, he's going to quote from her, looking ahead. I know the talk that's coming. Upasika Ki. She wrote a beautiful book called Pure and Simple. And I mean, she's interesting just from the very beginning, because she's a, a woman who was a really sincere practitioner. But there wasn't. It's very hard for women to practice, even today, in many places in Asia. And as a lay woman, even harder. So she and a group of friends actually found an abandoned monastery and kind of set up camp there and put together a few scraps of bamboo and cloth to build some shelter and started practicing there. And from that beginning, she actually developed a whole following and a very flourishing monastery. She, she died uh, some years ago, but she's quite an impressive figure. Very very clear and sharp mind. But this is what she said about her early days at that abandoned monastery. For food, we lived off the delicious bamboo roots growing in the bamboo clusters at the top of the hill. The bitter fruits and berries that the trees produced during the rainy season provided our medicine. As for utensils, we used whatever we could find in the forest. Coconut shells, for in- instance, make excellent bowls. You didn't have to worry about their getting broken. We kept patching our old clothes and slept on old mats and wooden pillows in the meeting hall. Up in the cave, I kept another wooden pillow to use when I was there. Wooden pillows are ideal for meditators. If you use soft ones, you have to worry about putting them away carefully. So if you come in and you find all your nice soft cushions replaced by wooden pillows, you know, we're just giving your practice a little extra oomph. So there's this whole tradition of this asceticism, this strength of renunciation in our lineage, in this tradition that we're practicing in. How do we as lay people in the 21st century relate to this? What's a skillful way to hold this? It's important to remember that in the Buddhist teachings that you hear when we're reading from the suttas or the scriptures, that the Buddha gave quite different teachings to lay people than he did to monastics. The monastic teachings were really teachings given to people who'd taken up vows of celibacy, who'd given up relationships, intimate relationships, and who had given up worldly possessions and, and aspirations. Um, and so the teachings would be appropriate to supporting that kind of practice and that practice needs a lot of support it's challenging practice but when the buddha spoke to lay people he gave quite different instructions and this is one example of an interaction of the buddha with some householders this is from the Anguttara nikaya and so someone says to the buddha venerable sir We are lay people who enjoy sensual pleasures, dwelling at home in a bed crowded with children, enjoying fine sandalwood, wearing garlands, scents, and unguents, accepting gold and silver. Let the Blessed One teach the Dharma to us in a way that will lead to our welfare and happiness, both in the present life and in the future life as well. So just describing you know a life of comfort a life engaged in family and with money and and the sense pleasures and the buddha's reply isn't oh that's not good you know you should give all that up and and wear you know cloth rags and and eat one meal a day like my monks he doesn't say that he responds with a teaching about how to find happiness in the life that they are leading and he talked about four things that lead to welfare and happiness in this very life. He talked about wise effort in maintaining and cultivating a livelihood that that is able to support you and your family. He talked about protecting the things that you had accumulated, your home and your valuables, your possessions. He talked about cultivating good friendship with people who are wise and skilled in the Dhamma and in understanding. And he talked about balanced living, that wasn't extravagant nor miserly. So, a very clear recognition of the differentiation between monastic practice and lay practice. And he went on to talk about what would bring future happiness, talking about generosity and dana, things like that. So, we need to recognize that as we approach this teaching on renunciation. Because for us in the 21st century, even though we may not be running around with garlands and unduents, we still lead basically pretty comfortable lives, whatever our situation. You know, and you know, we have very varied situations here of, of um, material well-being, but better off than most people on the planet. You know, more of a sense of comfort in life than many many people on this planet. And so many choices, so much to indulge in, in the pleasures of the senses, in material possessions, in entertainment, in gadgets, in whatever it might be that that we like to um, spend our time or money on, and we can end up living in what one teacher called high-class samsara, where you know it's quite comfortable but we're not really um, challenging ourselves in this area of what supports a spiritual life. We're just making ourselves comfortable. So this question for us as lay practitioners of what is enough, what is the appropriate relationship to to material possessions, to wealth, to livelihood, to what we have and what we give up, is really an ongoing question for many of us. And because it's a discussion that many of us have, a friend of ours actually ended up making a line of teacups out of these giant cups. So they're really big, but on them the word was enough. it's like just, this is enough, you know, to really start contemplating what is enough. Because what's happening for us as practitioners is we're creating a kind of hybrid. Traditionally in Asia, lay people didn't practice very much. Upasaka Ki was a real rarity, especially as a woman. They would be very devotional and perhaps support, support the monastery, support the monks and nuns, you know, practice the precepts, the five lay precepts, and offer dana to um, the monks and nuns. But they wouldn't meditate very much. And actually, truth be told, a lot of monastics didn't meditate or don't meditate very much in Asia. They might study uh, study texts or, or do rituals, um, the, there's, you know, not the, some lineage is not a strong emphasis on meditation, but here we're really interested in meditation. We're really interested in waking up. And so we're creating this lay model where our outer form is definitely that of lay people, but our inner sensibility is more that of renunciates. Of, of living a life that's guided by dharma principles. And many of us giving up jobs or careers or whatever to practice the dharma. It's a, it's a common theme for many people here. I know many, most of my friends, have, me included, have spent years as what we call dharma bums, just you know getting by on the bare minimum so we can practice. So we're in an interesting... Um, A new evolution of Dharma practice here in the West. But as I said, renunciation is definitely a strong part of this path. The Pali word is nekama, and it's part of the Eightfold Path. The the second path factor is wise wise or right intention, and it starts with renunciation, and it includes uh, goodwill and non-harming, but renunciation is right there as the first factor, and it's a parami. It's one of those quote, beautiful qualities of the heart and mind that it said that the Buddha developed before his awakening to lead him on to awakening, and, you know, the qualities like generosity or metta or patience. Renunciation is part of that list. So it's definitely central, definitely worth our considering what is our relationship to it. But it's not something that we jump up and down about exploring, right? Renunciation doesn't have good press, especially in our culture, even for us as practitioners, because the meaning or what we take uh, of this word is giving up, denial, not having what I like, um, some sense of rejection or uh, um, scarcity, so very limited appeal in our culture. And I saw this cartoon, you, do you know, Hagar the Horrible, the Viking, who's always running around plundering and then coming home and eating these huge meals. So this is a, you know, four scenes of Hagar and he's got his little sword and he's climbing up the mountain top. You know, he's going somewhere. It's one of these classic ones. The second frame, there's the wise looking sage know, with the beard, they always look the same. The beard and the little diaper at the top, the loincloth sitting there. And in the third frame, Hagar says to, the sa- says to this man, Oh, great sage, please teach me the secret of happiness. And in the third frame, the sage is replying, and he says, Simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. That's the teaching. That's the, uh, that's the secret of happiness. And in the fourth frame, Hagar is pausing and saying, Is there anyone up, else up there I can talk to? <laughs> That's kind of what we feel. It's like, oh, she's going to talk about renunciation for an hour. That's a downer, isn't it? <laughs> Even the Buddha wasn't so keen on it. Even with that background that I described of his ascetic practices, there's this interesting sutta, in the, again in the Anguttara, the Tapusa Sutta, where it says, This is, this is the sutta. It says, Then Venerable Ananda, together with Tapusa, the householder, went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Tapusa, the householder here, has said to me, Venerable Ananda, we are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in sensuality, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. It's like, oh, you know, we have all this good stuff, and you want me to give it up? Seems like a sheer drop off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, the hearts of the very young monks leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where the doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people in this issue of renunciation. Means we differ, we don't understand. The Buddha replies, so it is, Ananda, so it is. Even I myself, this is the Buddha speaking, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, thought renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation. (laughs) It didn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, what is the cause, what is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation? doesn't grow confident, steadfast, firm, seeing it as peace. Then the thought occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawbacks of sensual pleasure. I haven't pursued that understanding. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation. Da, 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 da. And then the thought occurred to me, if having seen the drawback of sensual pleasure, I were to pursue that theme, and having understood the reward of renunciation, I were to familiarize myself with it, there's the possibility that, that my heart would leap up at renunciation. And so he did that. He reflected on the drawback of sensual pleasure, understood the reward of renunciation, from, and now his heart did leap up. At renunciation grew confident, steadfast, and firm, and from that he withdrew and developed his meditation through the jhanas and led on to his awakening so this this appreciation this understanding of the dangers or the trap of sensual pleasures, especially for monastics on that kind of path, and the the rewards of renunciation were central to his quest. We have this belief that Happiness comes from pleasant, sensual feelings. Pascal spoke about this the other night. The Buddha is pointing to another relationship to that. He says that pleasant, sensual feelings, if you, you explore them, I'm, I'm sure you have even here and now. They're impermanent. They're unreliable. They can actually be a trap as we tend to base our lives around getting only pleasant, pushing away unpleasant, constantly chasing them, never satisfied. If we have that belief, if we don't question that belief system. And so practice, Buddhism invites us to contemplate a different relationship or a different understanding about what true happiness is. And spiritual practice is often riddled with paradoxes, where something we thought to be obvious or true turns out to be not so. And this is one of those cases where the Buddha says um, that it's often about giving up a lesser happiness for a greater one or giving up a short-term happiness for a long-term one. This is the teaching in the Dhammapada. He says, if by renouncing a lesser happiness one attains to a happiness which is greater, then the wise pursue that happiness which is greater. We have to begin to understand, though, what is the greater happiness? What is truly for our well-being and contentment and long-lasting benefit? And this is the question that's really at the heart of our practice, answering that question. Thanissaro Bhikkhu, one of the great Buddhist scholars of our day and translator of the text, has a whole um, short book on renunciation that he calls Trading Candy for Gold. And he's talking about this um, sacrifice or bargain that we might make. And he says we need to make intelligent sacrifices. It's not about giving up everything, but intelligent sacrifices, and he said, to do that, that means giving top priority to the mind, to the development of the mind. Material things and social relationships, he goes on to say, material things and social relationships are unstable and easily affected by forces beyond our control. So the happiness they offer is fleeting and undependable. But the well-being of a well-trained mind can survive even aging, illness, and death. To train the mind, though, requires time and energy. This is one reason why the pursuit of true happiness demands that we sacrifice some of our external pleasures. And this is exactly what you have all done in coming here. You've sacrificed a lot of external pleasure and comfort for this training of the mind that has the possibility, the potential, of leading to greater happinesses than those sensual pleasures that are out there could possibly give. And so we make this trade, we do this bargain, and we do it willingly. So it's starting to develop a different relationship and understanding what is truly beneficial for us, as the Buddha talked about, this middle way. So it's not about extremes. It's not about giving up everything. And again, as lay people, that's definitely not what's asked of us. But it is taking a longer term view of what happiness is than we tend to normally do, where it's very much about, you know, reaching out and grabbing what we want. Whether it's on a you know just an internal thing about how we work with the mind, or getting you know the the next hit of pleasantness, going even and here it's it's pretty limited, but it's amazing what we can find to you know keep keep that hit going, that addiction going. as simple as a sitting down in the dining room and getting a cup of tea or our favorite walking place or a hot shower at the right time. And again, none of those things are bad or wrong, but just to start to notice how we use them to keep that sense of pleasantness so we don't have to be with the unpleasantness. That sutta Pascal was quoting from, talks about the only way an untaught worldling knows to get away from unpleasantness is to replace it with the next pleasant thing. And so we're on that treadmill unless we start to bring some awareness to that. And so this bigger picture of what really brings us happiness is so important for us to answer. And so as we navigate this path of practice, we have to keep reflecting or, or um, contemplating, again, what, what is the greater happiness? What brings us more happiness? And how do we know that we're on the right path? Rather than having some idea of some future happiness, to actually see here and now, is there some degree of greater happiness or contentment or well-being these are qualities of mind and heart that we can know right now if we have a wise relationship to experience and to the things of the world and so it's we can track this and i'm sure you know you're here because of the faith you have in that that you have seen that in your life that giving up time to practice not being obsessed with material possessions or status in the world is to to actually let go of that brings greater happiness and ease we can see that already and when we talk about renunciation in this way and how you know giving up time giving up things to come practice to do practice here intensively or at home whatever our daily daily life kind of practices, it seems that it should be obvious. It seems like we should be logical beings about this, you know, that it gets pointed out and it's like, sure, you know, I'm gonna do two retreats a year or sit every day or you know, not get obsessed with this new sparkly thing that I might want. But it's not so easy, is it? We're actually not so rational. When something grips the mind, it's like, you know, they often try, it's like the hook through the nose and we're just led by that desire, unsatisfied until we fulfill it. There's all sorts of interesting studies now about how irrational we actually are. You know, we think we're the, the decider, you know, we're the decider and we're making these logical, rational decisions. And they do all these tests about how perception and conditions completely alter the way we feel about Everything, and so, but we have this belief about ourselves that, that we 're always making wise choices and doing what 's best, so to step back a little and see you know what 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 is actually happening here, and this is why our practice is so much about knowing what 's happening in this deep and intimate way so we can get more aligned with the truth of things, so we 're not so likely to be led or bedazzled by, you know, the next glittering thing that comes along. Because we can't practice simplicity or renunciation, however you want to call it, through sheer force of will, through, you know, seeing it as a deprivation, you know, that I should give up. If I was a good Buddhist, I wouldn't buy this or have that or want this. If we if we treat it that way it won't last. It's like being on a diet, you know, they always say diets don't last. You can't stay on a diet. It has to be a lifestyle change. It has to be a different way of relating to our day-to-day experience that this healthier eating or what, exercising or whatever it is becomes just part of how we relate and actually we see it leading to greater well-being instead of being uh, a state of deprivation, and so renunciation as a practice really needs to be like that. As a, as a again, not a deprivation, but something that starts to become I don't know more integrated. It, you could see it. It's it's the ultimate kind of green lifestyle. You know, we talk, people often talk about live simply so that others may simply live. That's really just a, a an expression of renunciation, of, of looking at what do we really need, not what do we want. And it's also looking at the obsessive mind, the mind that tends to get addicted to things. Joseph Goldstein talks about renunciation as non-addiction. And, you know, we have our classic things we think of as addictions, you know, drugs and alcohol and all those kinds of things. But it's also Addictions in the mind, addictions to certain kinds of thoughts, certain kinds of sense pleasures, certain kinds of experience. Letting go of this is also the practice of renunciation that we have, I'm sure as you've seen, the opportunity to do many, many times over in a day as the mind gets on this groove. It's like, can I give that up? It's actually causing me suffering. And so we start to look at renunciation not as this sort of denial or tight or or, um, grim practice, but actually leading to a greater sense of well-being and even coming from a sense of well-being. As we develop a deeper sense of well-being in the here and now and trust in ourselves and our practice, it's actually easier and easier to let go of what doesn't support that sense of well-being in our practice. And so renunciation can actually come from a sense of well-being rather than from a sense of denying ourselves or limitation. And it can be a very gentle practice. It's, it, it doesn't have to be, even shouldn't be, sort of fierce and, and negating, but rather gentle. There's a word I like that's pe- uh, perhaps even better than renunciation, and that's relinquishment. Relinquishment. When I think of relinquishment, I think of letting go of what no longer serves us and how that can lead to ease and well-being. And even the word relinquishment, to relinquish, sort of sounds better. To me, it sort of sounds like the unfolding the hand that's been gripping something, relinquishment. Whereas renouncing, renounce, I know there's a harshness to it, and it sounds like denounce, you know, that's bad, that's wrong, I'm not going to, you know, and I'm bad or wrong if I indulge in that, and that's bad, and I'm bad, and there's just a kind of harshness. But relinquishment, can I just let go of what no longer serves me? Can I do that from a sense of care, a compassion for myself, of actually inviting a greater sense of ease and well-being? A a little while ago, I read this book by Jeff Dyer. It's just a novel, and it's about. It's called Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi, and it's. You know, I enjoyed it. It's but it's about uh, these. Two interrelated stories where it's kind of the same guy, but kind of the author, kind of not, and in these two very different scenarios. And it's a lot about just the neurotic habits of the average, you know, 21st century person. But it had this paragraph in it that, that I made me think that this guy's done some practice because I think he knows a little bit what he's talking about. He said, "We think of renunciation happening formally, definitively, possibly as a result of frustration." anger or disappointment. This world I do renounce. But it can happen gradually. So gradually it doesn't feel like renunciation. The reason it doesn't feel like renunciation is because it's not. I didn't renounce the world, I just became gradually less interested in certain aspects of it, less involved with it, and that diminution of interest was slowly reciprocated. That's how it works. The world stops singling you out and you stop feeling singled out by the world. And I think all of us as practitioners have had a little sense of that. We haven't deliberately said, no, I don't want that. You know, whatever it is, material possessions or status or money. But there's been this gradual seeing that that is not the source of happiness that we actually don't need to be, you know, recognized in the, on the cover of Fortune magazine or whatever it is to be happy. And looking at people who are, how many of them look happy? You know, it, it just doesn't seem like a very happy life. People that run after power, run after fame, run after fortune. Craziness follows. And so it's just this very natural letting go that, hasn't happened, as, as this paragraph said, uh, uh, of out, out of, you know, frustration or fear, but just this kind of relinquishment. You know, I see, I see it in myself, not, not, you know, I have a, a comfortable home and, you know, uh, able to have the things that make a life somewhat comfortable, but my car is now 15 years old. You know, I got it in 1997. It was the first new car I'd ever bought, and it was exciting to get a new car you know the first and it, like you drive it out of the showroom and you're so nervous I had to drive it across the Golden Gate Bridge and worried about the first scratch the first ding even the first mud in the car's like no it's getting dirty and you're now please don't look at my car I mean guy kind of grimaces when he has to get in it's got hay all over it and mud and you know all my horse clothes in the back and things like that because I feed these horses in the mud every day um and now it's just a vehicle. But it went through that, you know, from my new car, it just went to being my car and it's been that way for a long time. And I remember at a certain point getting dissatisfied with it. It still drove fine, it still does, but it had a tape player in it. I got it before CD players were that common, so it had a ta- I couldn't play any CDs and it doesn't have a good cup holder. So I was like, hmm, this car, you know, doesn't have a CD player. I think I should get a new car because it doesn't have a CD player, a good cup holder. It's like, huh? So realized that wasn't so sensible. So I got, you know, you can buy a seat. So I bought a CD player. Now I'm very happy. It got a CD player. I could play. It still doesn't have a good cup holder, though. So every now and then I think I should get a new car, you know? Nearly everyone I know has a newer car than I do you know friends you know I could afford a new car you know there's all these reasons they're safer now and of course as Gaiman said I could get a Prius you know (laughs) better gas mileage but the truth is I drive about three to four thousand miles a year it would take a long time to pay off you know through the savings of gas the investment in one of those cars they're not that cheap And, you know, but it's got gadgets. It's got that video reversing thing. And, you know, I love gadgets. And so every now and then I feel this lift. And if you, you know, the parking lot here at Spirit Rock is like half Priuses, you know, everyone's got a Prius. So I say, you're always seeing Priuses. It's like, oh. And then I look and, you know, I could, and yet, my car does what a car needs to do. It gets me round, it's pretty safe, it's really reliable. And so I see these little, you know, uplifts where the mind just kind of lands on it and I can't, you know, get that extra oomph that's like, yes, I should get a new... So it just dissipates again in a little while later. But I could... And so here I am, 15 years, and I still have the the same car and it's got a few dings or whatever. And it doesn't feel like... A deprivation. You know, I I probably would like to have a new car. I like the sparkly, you know, and the new car smell and everything. But the mind just doesn't go there in the way that, you know, a lot of people have to have a new car every few years. And and I just, it doesn't seem that that's, that's a useful way to spend my resources. And they, you know, they actually say that environmentally it's best to keep your old car, so you've got that too. So it's really just this different relationship that we can have to our possessions. Not sackcloth and ashes, I'm denying myself because, you know, I shouldn't get a new car, but just doesn't seem that that's a worthwhile thing to get obsessed around. And so it's starting to inquire into what's really important for us in our life? What's truly important? And letting the other stuff go. And that can seem so freeing. I'm sure you've all had a taste of that. I just listened to a talk by Ajahn Mehta. She's one of the nuns at Amaravati in England. And she was talking about her experience when she ordained. And even though, you know, they're just, I think, 10 precept nuns, actually, they take more than that now. So they don't take the... they. She's not one of these nuns that took a full ordination, but still, there's enough in the precepts that they take that it's a very austere life. And you basically give up everything. You, know, you cut your hair. You give away your possessions. You give up control of your life, which is a big thing. You enter a community where the people who are above you basically can. Uh, you have to. They have to agree with what you want to do as far as practice, etc. So it's a big letting go. And she was really apprehensive. About this, even though she was really wanting to do it, understandable. And then when it finally happened, she said she felt nothing but joy and contentment in that letting go. And she said that in her, she just sees how her life revolves around such different ideas and obsessions than it used to be. Instead of worrying about what does she need to buy next or what's on sale or what, how to take care of her possessions. She worries it. She do not worry. She she spends her time contemplating the Dharma and having that sense of lightness or free, free fr- freedom from that. So it's just this shift that can happen. As Suzuki Roshi said, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but accepting that they go away. That as much as we want to hold on, they're going. You know, the new car gets old. The thing that we lusted after, we have it for a little while, and it's forgotten on the shelf, and the next thing is what we want. So we start to see the power of this letting go, to see it actually is the third noble truth, that the first noble truth is there is suffering. Second, the cause of suffering is craving, is trying to hold on. And the third noble truth is that letting go letting go of craving and we never know what we will start to experience or open to when we let things go you know as they say one door closes another door opens It's this beautiful zen saying or poem when my house burned down I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky when my house burned down I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky That's true letting go. You know, not got to call state farm and see what uh, insurance policy I have, but just the spaciousness that's there. And so it's about developing this wise relationship to the things we have, to the things we don't have and might want. Not out of fear or avoiding, you know, as a good practitioner I shouldn't do this, but really looking at needs rather than wants. And this is a, a classic, you know, reflection. What do I need to actually just survive rather than what, what my wants, my my different changing ideas are? So here, as I said, it's a great opportunity to practice simplicity and renunciation. Some of it is forced on you, you know, your little room, shared or otherwise. Uh, The simple food that's served, it's delicious, but you don't get to order it. You don't walk in and say, I feel like Thai tonight. It's like, you know, lentil soup. That's what you eat. Um, And it's at certain times, not when you might want the schedule, a lot of renunciation here. Can we accept that? The conditions that are here. You know, your yogi job. I'm sure you've all figured a hundred ways that it could be done better you know, differently or whatever. Um, Or, you know, your fellow work companions, they could do things better or differently. Just renouncing, giving up that kind of contentiousness or or wanting things to be different. So a lot to practice with here. In In our inner world as well. Because it's not just about giving up stuff. One of the biggest and most helpful forms of renunciation is actually giving up our views and opinions, giving up the I'm right, giving up I know, I know the best way, giving up our stories that we entertain ourselves with for hours. Guy was talking last night about this, about the self-view that gets created through views and opinions, the sense of self and the papancha that spins out and creates this whole solidity in our experience. To, to renounce judging. I mean, what would that be like? I, I lead a, a program called Dedicated Practitioners Program. Some people here in that program. Many of you, some of you, have been in past programs. The last couple of retreats we've had. Um, these retreats are very interactive. They're not in silence. They're really engaged. We uh, real emphasis on creating community and friendships, dharma friendships in the program. A lot of study. And at the beginning of each these retreats, we've actually taken a vow to renounce judging, fixing, and comparing. <laughs> May it be so. But it's a ama- you know, you can't just say it and it happens, but it actually has a little power to it. People remind, you know, they'll start to say something and that's, all oh, right. right, but I remember, I renounced judging, fixing, comparing, so I'm just gonna drop that thought or drop that, that um, sense of identity. So to actually see that this is another place that we can practice renunciation because we love being right. We love it more than most of our stuff, actually, don't we? Love being right, hate being wrong. You know, it's just so, you know, all of the politics of the country about, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, and this huge divide there is. Uh, The staff room the other day, a group of us were talking about relationships and someone just said, what's the best relationship advice you've ever gotten? And this person said something that really stuck with me. and She said, the best relationship advice was, whoever's doing it is doing it right. (laughs) And basically it means if someone's doing something, taking the initiative or doing a chore or whatever, they're doing it right. And as much as you might have a better way of doing it that you know you think they would love to hear about, to just accept that they're doing it. It's what I've taken this up. It's a practice for me. You know, having certain ideas about... Having a little bit of this tendency myself. Of just a little bit. Because we do... uh, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. (laughs) You know, we don't say this consciously. I don't know why these other teachers are looking at me in this way. (laughs) But somewhere in there we have this idea that I have surveyed all of the information that's out there about whatever it is. You know, how to load a dishwasher or, you know, take out the garbage or drive a car or even, you know, do whatever we need to do with our mother. You know, I I have accumulated this wisdom, and I know, you know, I'm right. And we're always surprised when the other doesn't want the benefit of our wisdom. (laughs) This is one of the biggest renunciations. Can we renounce being right? Judging, comparing, fixing, telling the other how things should be, and have actually some humility have actually some uh, sense of not needing to be right all the time, not needing to inflict our opinion on the other. And, you know, that's how it is in relationships, in workplace or whatever. See how you're doing it just in your own inner experience. Oh, spirit rock really shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't buy that or do this or more of this and less of that. We're always, what was that, samsara is correcting, always trying to fix what a relief it would be to renounce that. Not to be passive, you know, it means then we don't care, indifferent, but just that, that addictive quality that we can have to being right. And to see how that could lead to you know, to happiness, inner and outer, in our relationships and our inner world, to, to equanimity and to harmony and ease, if we could give up this fixation, this, this obsession about self-righteous indignation or judging or fixing or comparing on just being right, on this sense of I know what's best. As Bhikkhu Bodhi said, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. We no longer feel uh, compelled to get objects or compelled to be the one who knows, but actually can rest in true knowing, the real wisdom that's possible. And actually find that in simplicity, in humility, in letting go. There's another great story in the suttas about a king. And they use this word king kind of loosely in the suttas. It means, you know, someone who had, you know, some territory, a fiefdom or whatever. But anyway, he had this wealthy life and it said a lot of, you know, a palace and wealth and a territory he looked after and guards to protect him. And he he gave all that up and became a monk, you know, and as I said, a few robes and a bowl left everything behind and was living out in the woods with the other monks. But the other monks heard him while he was sitting under his tree saying, what bliss, what bliss, what bliss. And things haven't changed that much. It said the monks heard that and said, what's he thinking about? I don't trust that. You know, he's getting up to something in those thoughts. And they went off and told the Buddha and said, old Bodhiya over there, he's sitting under the tree saying, what bliss, what bliss? But the Buddha said, oh, this is interesting. Tell him to come to me. Called him, comes. Bodhiya sits there and the Buddha says, is this true? Are you sitting when you're meditating saying, what bliss, what bliss? And if so, what are you thinking about? And Badia says, "Yes, I am saying what bliss, what bliss." He said, "When I was a king, I had everything. I had a palace and wives and possessions, and I had guards to protect me. And I lived a life of fear. I was always worried about being overthrown and, look, you know, having to make war." And said, "My life was full of fear and anguish." And he said, "Now I live in the woods with my robes and bowl. I have nothing." and I've never been happier. What bliss, what bliss. This is what he was thinking of, that in this life of renunciation, he was happier than he had ever been in his wealthy life. And renunciation isn't just about giving up everything. It's also about finding balance. And again, for us as lay people, this can be a really important aspect of it, finding balance in our work life, in what we do for entertainment, in what we do for hobbies and, you know, things for pleasure. Um, I saw this cartoon a little while ago, and it, you know, first panel was Mousetrap, and it had classic, you know, the terrible mouse-trapped piece of cheese and a little mouse creeping towards it. And the next one, it had a computer with a sign, Free Internet, and these people like this, and it said, Human Trap. It's kind of like that, isn't it? You know, you get lost there in the internet. It's about finding balance out of this sense of what's actually best for us. And Pema Chodron says about renunciation, it's not a denial. She said, renunciation is actually saying yes saying yes to the present moment, to the best part of ourselves. The whole journey of renunciation, or starting to say yes to life, is realizing, first of all, that you've come up against your edge, that everything in you is saying no, and then, at that point, softening. This is yet another opportunity to develop loving-kindness for yourself, which results in playfulness, learning to play like the raven in the wind. So it's softening. It's actually saying yes, but to that better part of ourselves. It's not a denial, a rigidity, a self-flagellation, but actually seeing what truly serves us. And so renunciation can actually come to be a source of happiness as we delight in this simplicity and let go of what no longer serves us, of what's limited us or bound us in some way. And it doesn't have to be this big dramatic gesture, you know, is that, that novel, you know, I renounce the world, I renounce my possessions. It's this internal letting go very quietly that we can do over and over again. And we start to see the benefit or the happiness of that. Again, just In this life you're leading here on retreat. How simple is it? You wake up and you don't have to think, what will I do today? Get up, meditate. What will I wear? Pretty much the same as I wore yesterday. And yet, you know, you've probably have some of your happiest moments here in this place, in the simplicity of just paying attention. I know you've had some very unhappy ones too probably but you're here because you have found happiness in this simplicity, in the, this, the renunciation, the, the quietness that's here. And so renunciation is the ultimate practice of letting go of the third noble truth of freedom. Nibbana or freedom isn't something out there that we're going to get, but it's letting go here and now, letting go of craving, letting go of what doesn't serve us. And not as some cold denial of what we love or cherish, but actually opening to a truer happiness, because there's space for that happiness to grow. And again, from the Anguttara, the words of the Buddha, Whoever has turned to renunciation, turned to detachment of the mind, is filled with all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after life. So let's just sit and let the words settle for a moment. Whosoever has turned to renunciation, turned to detachment of the mind, is filled with an all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after life. Thank you for your attention. Time for walking and then we'll come back to the last sit with chanting.